All right, let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Oh, Father, we thank you for your grace to us, the fact that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, that he paid the penalty in full, and that all that is required of us for salvation is to simply trust in him that we might have eternal life. Father, we thank you for your word which you have revealed to us, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and it is in your light that we see light. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, that we pray that you would challenge us with the principles that are here and that we may get, gain a greater understanding of how you work in the Old Testament and how you continue to work in history to bring about your goals and your purposes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Judges. This is one of my favorite books. I mean, I have taught the book of Judges several times. I love it. I wrote my master's thesis in seminary on Jephthah's vow, which we'll get into in chapter 11. But I think that it is the most important book for people to understand and to teach today. And the reason is, is because the theme of this verse, as we'll see, I mean the theme of this book, as we'll see, is given in Judges 21 25 and also repeated in Judges 17.6, and that is there was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What does that mean, everyone did what was right in his own eyes? That means they lived in a period of moral relativism. Nobody paid attention to what God said, and everybody just did whatever they thought was right. And, there, and it's therefore, the book of Judges is a portrait for us, a historical portrait for us, of what happens to a nation that succumbs to moral relativism and what happens to a church and to a people that succumb to moral relativism. And this needs to be taught again and again and again to people today because, and different examples from this book because it is a picture of what we're going through as a nation today. We are right in the middle of this same kind of cycle. How did that vote go yesterday? How did the vote go? Uh, 70, on Proposition 2, it was 77 to 20, 76 to 24. Yes. Against. Right. Oh, yeah. It, you know, paganism operates on, on lies and distortions of truth and more relative it's just a lot of things they did we'll see a lot of character some of the things that I'm going to pull out of judges if we have time are going to surprise you it's here okay let's look at the introductory part we have the the book itself is a book about judges see I don't you love these little memory devices the judges writing Several judges writing cycles. Because the book is about judges who are not like we think of as judges. But they, there are cycles that you see going through this entire book. The cycles of disobedience and discipline and then deliverance. So the book of Judges describes the cycles of discipline that Israel went through during a period of approximately... Uh, approximately 350 years. The title of the book 
The English title of the book of Judges is identical to that of the Vulgate. The Vulgate, remember, is the Latin translation that was done by Jerome in the 4th century B.C. And he named the book the Liber Judicum, which is the Latin for the book of Judges. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which identified the book as Critai, meaning Judges, both of which are translations of the Hebrew title Shofetim. And Shofetim is the Hebrew word for judges. A Shofet is a judge. So that is the title of the book. It, it comes from the Hebrew title Shofetim, meaning judges. The judge in Israel was one who executed justice. This included not only decision-making, as we think of as going to a judge in order to resolve conflicts or problems, or to punish the guilty, but it also included military activities. He was a kind of a mix of a military deliverer, conqueror, general, and decision maker. Second point, authorship. It's unknown. It's probably Samuel or someone in the school of the prophets under Samuel, but we don't know for sure. Uh, very likely it's written by a, by a prophet. Now the date. The date, this was, let me skip through all my, oh, some of these slides here. We'll have to go back to these in a minute. The date is written after 1050 B.C., probably during the monarchy. We know that because the key verse says there was no king in Israel at that time, which indicates that it's written during a time when there was a king. Saul becomes king approximately 1050 B.C. So it would be written after Saul uh, became king, which is the period known as the monarchy. It concentrates on man, on Israel, and what happened... um, what the focus of this really as it's written after Saul becomes king it's focusing on the crisis that Israel faced over kingship it's written on the crisis they faced over kingship over leadership who's going to lead the nation and so, so a, a fundamental issue in the whole book of Judges is going to be authority who is the authority see they reject it when you, we have that phrase there's no king in Israel. That indicates that there's a rejection of ultimate authority and everybody's just going to do it to in their own eyes. It's pure anarchy. It's the idea that everybody has a right to run their own life their own way. The time period that's covered is from Joshua and the end of the book of Joshua, which is approximately 1380 B.C., to Samuel who begins to rule as the last judge. Samuel is not in the book of Judges. But Samuel is the last judge, and he is a prophet, and he is the major figure in the first part of the book of Samuel. And I put a chart here for you of the judges of Israel. This is uh, copied out of your Bible knowledge commentary, listing the judges and and the oppressors. So if you look at the middle column, you have a list of the the judges. Uh, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar... Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Ibzon, Ellen, Abdon, and Samson. 
Not all of them are major judges. Some of them just have a few things said about them, such as Othniel, but others are just briefly mentioned. Tola, Jair, Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon are just barely mentioned. If you look at the, the chart, the left-hand side tells you who the uh, foreign oppressor was at, during the time of that judge. It gives you a chronology there of the years of oppression. And then... On the right-hand side, you have the years that the judge lived and was in a position of authority. And if you add all of that up, you discover that it's, it's really a time period that's longer than the period of judges in it from a conservative viewpoint. From 1380 to 1075 is how long? About 305 years. But if you add all those numbers up, uh, in that right-hand column there, you come up with uh, 251, 258, 268, 276, about 296, uh, 296 years. So it, it could judged as Shamgar's got a question mark by him but I don't think he uh, it's it, 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 he is not really identified as a judge as we'll see he is a deliverer but he is never identified as a judge and I think that's important and we'll see why when we get there okay the fifth point the purpose the purpose the purpose of judges is to demonstrate the failure of the people to obey the Mosaic law the consequences for their failure, which are these cycles of discipline, which come out of, remember Leviticus 26 outlines the cycles of discipline God's going to take the nation through if they're disobedient, and Deuteronomy 28. And it's demonstrating that there is a need for a king. Now, the king that God has in mind, remember back in Deuteronomy, God said, went, said there's a king and his job is to, what, write down, make a copy of the law every day. God has the plan for a king. But the people, in rebellion against God as the king, remember God is the king in a theocracy. So you have, you have a theocracy where God's the king. And that's mediated through the priesthood and the prophets over the nation. And this gives the people in the nation a tremendous amount of freedom. But without a human authority, they just want to do whatever they want to do. And so it shows a complete breakdown of putting all the emphasis on the individual. And the reason it breaks down is because of sin. Because man always wants to be his own authority. And so God has a plan to establish a king, but they, they'll jumpstart that, or they'll, they'll uh, get in the way in Samuel, and they want to have a king like all the other nations. So God's going to give them their first king, which is Saul. And Saul's going to look good. He's going to He's tall, he's handsome, he's regal, he has all the external uh, attractiveness of a king, 
but spiritually he's a failure. And that sets the stage for David, who is going to be a man after God's own heart. Ultimately, what God is showing in this is that society is never going to function well uh, until there's a perfect king. And as long as man is, is imperfect and a sinner, and the leadership comes out of the sinful nation, the leadership is always going to reflect the culture out of which it comes. And remember that. We get the leaders we deserve. The presidents that we get are reflect the culture out of which they come. And we get so we get the leaders we deserve and that leads to if you're in if you're if a nation is in the ascendancy spiritually, you're going to get better and better leaders. But if they're in decline spiritually, you're going to get worse and worse leaders and the deterioration and decline of a nation is just going to increase more and more rapidly as you go through time because ultimately the people have rejected God as the source of their absolutes. So Judges describes for us the paganization of society. Now what do I mean by the word pagan? Pagan is not a, a, a word that is a, a pejorative or it's, I'm not being insulting. Pagan is a technical word. You look it up in the dictionary, it means any system of belief that is not biblical. That's the technical word for a pagan. So no matter how wonderful people may be, no matter how moral they may be, if they're not operating on the Bible as their basis for authority, then they're pagans. Yes? You'll find some people who want to identify pagan with witchcraft. That's not the uh, that's not the historical accepted meaning of the word. It's broader than that. It's anybody, no matter who they are, no matter how uh, uh, they can be atheists, they can be uh, Buddhists, they can be Hindu. Now, now Islam isn't considered pagan because it's ulti- it, it, it is. Islam and Judaism both allegedly go back to the God of the Old Testament, though I dispute that with Islam. I think it's, I think it's truly pagan. But Judges describes the paganization of society. What I mean by that is that as we go through the book of Judges, we will see the impact of moral relativism of the Canaanites or antinomianism. Now, what does antinomianism mean? Antinomianism is another word for moral relativism. It means against law. It's the rejection of absolutes. I can do whatever I want to do with impunity, without any kind of uh, accountability. Uh, So what Judges portrays is what happens to people who live in the context of a morally relative society and absorb those values into their thinking, no matter how religious they may be, no matter how much they might be a believer, and we see these strong leaders, what happens is, as we go through the book of Judges, we'll see that there is this these cycles of increasing paganism. The leaders become worse and worse and worse, because even though they're believers, even though they're saved, even though they're the men God chooses, they are increasingly affected by the 
pagan society around him. And what we see is that when the book starts off with the first judge, Othniel, he is still a picture of a, of a biblically sound leader. He, uh, he is, nothing negative is said about Othniel. What we learn from him from judges is he, he trusts God. He, he's willing, he has tremendous courage in battle. His wife, Oxa, shows that she has tremendous respect and deference to the authority in her life, her father, when she goes to Caleb to ask for the springs and the wells. And so it starts off with a high view of, of the woman. She's treated well. She shows respect. And then by the time we get to the end of the book, we see what happens in, to all elements of society. We have Samson, who never does what he's supposed to do. He's a womanizer, which shows that in pagan pagan cultures you have a lack of respect for women women are treated as sex objects Uh, women are the objects of violence and are abused physically and emotionally all of this is because there is an increasing disrespect for people as being created in the image of God you no longer have that anymore so that that people say today that oh well we just know more about abuse today no we don't there were always examples of abuse in the 19th century or 18th century because you always had people who were unbelievers. But it didn't dominate the culture like it does today because they were, the culture as a whole operated on, on a set of biblical values. So people as a whole didn't do that. The reason we know more about it today and it's more prevalent is because we have a society that is so divorced from spiritual reality. And the more culture gets away from God as their source, the more... All, it breaks down and fragments and falls apart, which is what we see in the book of Judges. Now, Judges is, um, before we get to that next slide, what Judges does is it traces the relationship between moral anarchy and political anarchy. There is a direct connection according to the, this picture here that as the people become more and more divorced from God, it affects the political leadership and the political health of the society. And it demonstrates that character matters. I remember when uh, 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 Clinton got into the whole uh, Lewinsky thing, and even before that, because of things that had gone on with Clinton in Arkansas, people said, well, he's a good leader, Uh, character really doesn't matter. No, character matters uh, because of character. When, when there are character flaws, it, uh, it affects your decision-making. So the book of Judges is written to demonstrate the need for a particular kind of authority, authority of a man who is uh, under the authority of God and is obedient to, obedient to Scripture. The, when we come to the key verse... We come to the key verse, which is I don't have up here on the screen, which is Judges 21:25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. That's sort of a double entendre. You know what a double entendre is? It's a it's a phrase that can have two meanings. When it says there was no king in Israel, who was supposed to be the king in Israel? God. It's also indicating there was no physical king in Israel. You didn't have the kingship yet. But it's, but it's what it's saying is there's no king in Israel because they've rejected God as king. And so once God is taken out of the picture, there's a vacuum of authority 
And who slips into that vacuum of authority? The people. They're going to determine to be the ultimate source of right and wrong. So Judges is an argument to show why a human king was necessary in Israel. And it shows that when God is removed, everything in society, all your social institutions, everything in society falls apart. Okay, the sixth point, by way of introduction, the key verse is Judges 21-25. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's repeated twice in the book to make sure we get it. There's only two or three verses in the whole scripture that are repeated twice. There's a, a Proverbs uh, 14, and I can't, in the old, in, I mean, I mean in the whole Bible, you only have two or three verses that are repeated. You've got some similar things in, 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 uh, in the Gospels because they're parallel accounts, but uh, you only have very few things that are repeated twice. In Proverbs, you have one verse repeated twice. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. It's in Proverbs 14, I can't remember the verse, and again, it's repeated, I think, in Proverbs 21. Then you have Judges 21-25 and Judges 17-6, which are identical verses, and then you have, uh, in all four Gospels, you have the resurrection of Christ. That's just about the only, there's only a couple of things that are mentioned in all four Gospels, so you need to pay attention to those kinds of things, because it's a point of emphasis in the, in the Scripture. Okay, seventh point, the context of the book. How do we fit judges into the context of what's going on in uh, in the flow of the Old Testament history? Judges is the second book in the former prophets in the Nevi'im. Remember, Jewish Jewish division of the Old Testament has three divisions. What are they? This will show up on the final. What are the divisions in the Jewish Old Testament? What's the first division? Come on, team. Yeah, the law, the Torah. What's the second division? The Nevi'im. The Nevi'im means the prophets. And then the third division is the Ketuvim. which is the writings. Now the prophets include the early prophets and the latter prophets. Now that tells us that Judges is a book written by a prophet. Now we think of prophecy as uh, as foretelling the future. But the role of the prophet was as a prosecuting attorney for the law, telling, showing the people that they have disobeyed the law and why they're going through discipline. And that, in turn, as part of that, they would foretell the future and future discipline. So that's why it's included in the Nevi'im. As we'll see later, Ruth, which is at the end, was included in the Ketuvim, which is part of the writings, which indicates its purpose was understood for communicating wisdom about life. So Deuteronomy, which we studied two, two weeks ago, is the constitution of the theocracy, gives the Mosaic law with all the stipulations and laws related to every area of life, and that's the legal foundation for the theocracy. 
Then in Joshua, we see the erection or the establishment of the theocracy in the land. In order to have a nation, you have to have a law code and a land. And so they get the land under conquest. And Judges shows the failure of man, the failure of the nation under the theocracy, that they fail to obey uh, the law. Then we come to the structure. The structure of the book, and let me go back to a previous slide. There's the structure of the book in basic outline form. You have an introduction in the first three chapters, uh, two chapters in, into the third. From 1 1 to 3 6, we have the introduction. This is the, uh, I identify this as the, in the notes as the basis for the paganization of Israel. It's a summary of what takes place and why during the period. It summarizes the conditions that give rise to the deterioration of the culture during the period. We see in that period, those introductory chapters that Israel fails to fully defeat the Canaanites and remove them from the land. And as a result of that, they are influenced by the culture around them. And before you know it, they are worshiping the gods and goddesses of the culture around them. They give lip service to Yahweh and the, and the tabernacle. They become uh, superficially religious. We see the same kind of thing going on today, don't we? We see people, we see Christians who go to church on Sunday and they use God words and God talk. We see all these televangelists who use God words and God talks and Bible, Bible words, but their, but their basic theology is as pagan as it can be. It's not biblical. So we see the basis for the paganization in 1, 1 to 3, 6. In 3, 7 to 1631, we see the core of the book, which is the paganization of the leadership of the nation. And it's an analysis of how the leaders perform, and there is increasing deterioration. The, the first judge is Othniel, and he's presented without flaw. And the last judge is Samuel, and he's presented without any, any good qualities. The nation begins in freedom, and the nation ends, and they're still in, under the domination of the Philistines. They're not delivered. So you see this deterioration because of their failure to be obedient to the word. And in the last section... 17 to 21, we learn how the, about the paganization of the people and the priesthood. So there is a the writer is make, he is writing politically. He, this is one of the most important political uh, books in the Bible. This in First Samuel chapter seven, when the people call for, we'll see this in First Samuel seven, when the people want a king. God says, okay, this is what's going to happen. He's going to overtax you, and he's going to draft your men and take them to war, and he's going to do all these negative things. It is one of the most important pieces of literature in all history on politics, and it comes from God. And the same thing happens here. It's showing uh, I mean, tremendous lessons about how leadership and people interrelate and how a culture is destroyed as it succumbs to... to um, to paganism. Now, I have three points here that I've given as principles. That's why I put those little asterisks there. First of all, when a nation rejects the historical evidence for Christianity, when it dis- rejects the historical objective reality of Christianity, you know what I mean by objective? That it has, me- it has 
external support through through evidence that's not based on how I feel. See, objective is outside of you, subjective is inside of you. So the basis for Christianity is objective. It's not based on how you feel or what you think or how Jesus spoke to you or any of this nonsense you hear today. That's subjectivity. So when a nation rejects the historical objective truth of Christianity, it always becomes subjective. To put that in very simple language, people start talking more and more about how they feel about something rather than what they think about something. How many times, catch yourself, think about this now. How many times do you ask somebody, well, how do you feel about church Sunday? Frankly, I don't care what you feel about church on Sunday. I want to know what you think. See, there's a difference between emotion and thinking. I don't care how you feel. God doesn't care how you feel. He wants to know how you think. So what happens is the more a culture becomes subjective and focusing on the inward life, the more they lead to mysticism. And mysticism replaces the external objective authority of God with my internal sense of what God ought to do. And third principle I emphasize, subjectivity in a nation always leads to the destruction of that culture. And this whole section deals with how a nation becomes subjective. Subjective. Now, teaching points that we'll emphasize here. First of all, fill in the blank. I'm not going. I've got this later on in the slides, but I'm not going to go to that right now. All the judges fail. All the judges fail. Let's see if I have this slide. Here we go. There's a deterioration that you see as you go from each judge, from Othniel. To Ehud, to Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. Each judge is progressively worse than the judge before. Now, what's great for us is just a, just a principle of grace, is when you get into Hebrews 11, all these people are mentioned for their example of faith. If you read the book of Judges, you come away thinking, these guys are, a lot of these guys are losers. But at some point in their life, they trusted God when it mattered. And, and see, God's not looking at us from perfection. He's saying, look, you, you know, he, he's not trying to point out the flaws. He's pointing out the faith where we trusted him. So we learn that all the judges fail with the exception of, of Othniel, who's not painted as, as having any flaws. Second thing, the people fail to drive out their enemies. The people fail to drive out their enemies. The nation can't survive if the people are not willing to follow God's leadership. So because the people are disobedient and they fail to drive out the, leader, the, the enemies, the nation will fail. Third teaching point, the priests fail to lead this people spiritually. This comes in the appendix. The priesthood succumbs to paganism. And the priests fail to lead the people spiritually. The result of this is chaos, anarchy. The culture fragments and falls apart. The result is chaos. By the end of the book of Judges, the people are no different from the pagan culture surrounding them. You can't tell any difference between the Jews and the Canaanites or anybody else because they completely rejected God's word. It's God's word that makes a difference in the culture. And the last judge that we see is blind. Samson is blinded. He's blind. And that's a picture of what? 
the fact that the nation has become spiritually blind. Okay, so those fill in the blanks. All the judges fail. The people fail to drive out their enemies. The priests fail to lead the people spiritually. The result was chaos. The last judge was blind. And this leaves the reader looking for a righteous leader. Who can come and deliver the nation? Now, if you put this in its historical perspective, Judges pictures the people rejecting God and you end in despair and in chaos and anarchy. That's how Samuel begins. Samuel begins with the people in in oppression. They're under the dominance of the Philistines. And how does Samuel end? With David as the king, they got order, conquest. Why? Because God provided a provided a king. It's a picture of what will happen in salvation. Now, turn with me to Judges chapter two, and we see an analysis, the God's analysis of this whole thing, and. Uh, Chapter 2, 6 through 10. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. So Joshua's generation serves the Lord, and they it's, it's reviewed for us in chapter 1, goes through each of the tribes, and as they took possession of their land, and, and the first tribes pretty much wipe out the Canaanites there, but when you get to the last tribe, uh, down towards the end, the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Naphtali, they, they don't drive out the inhabitants. In fact, they are defeated, and then they just coexist with the Canaanites. So, spiritually, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. So those who lived beyond Joshua uh, for another 20 or 30 years, they, they served the Lord. Those who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. In other words, they had been witnesses of the conquest. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance. And when all that generation had gathered to their fathers, another generation arose. This is in verse 10. Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. And then, verse 11, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And so you see this cycle that's described in chapter 2. They forsake the Lord, they go into idolatry, and they become no different from the people around them. And then, verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So you go through this cycle where there's disobedience and then there's discipline. The anger of the Lord is against them and he delivers them into the hands of plunderers, that is, foreign enemies. This is exactly what he promised in Leviticus 26, isn't it? See, this isn't random. You have to start with the Old Testament law. Once you understand what's going on in the Mosaic law, then this gives you the ability to understand and interpret what's going on in Judges. What's the principle here? A principle here is that the Word of God gives you a framework for being able to interpret history. If you understand the Word of God, especially the Old Testament, that gives you a framework for being able to understand even current trends in history and politics. 
And as a believer, then, you have an understanding and a perception. You have what the Old Testament calls wisdom when it comes to decision-making and understanding and evaluating uh, trends in history. So the Lord disciplines them, and then after a while, uh, they, they, they repent, uh, and they turn back to the Lord. And the Lord then provides deliverers, verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to the judges, but played the harlot with other gods. That's a picture of unfaithfulness. And bowed down to them, they turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked. In obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them, and on and on. So this describes the cycle that goes on throughout the book of Judges. Disobedience, deliver, uh, discipline, then deliverance, and then the people just go right back into disobedience. Why is that? Because they don't stick with the Word. You, you as an individual believer can go through the same cycle if you don't stick with the Word. Okay, here's a timeline so that we can orient to what's going on. In 1446 B.C. you have the Exodus. Then there's 40 years in the wilderness and the conquest takes place in 1406 B.C. Uh, and the initial conquest takes place from about, over a period of seven years from 1406 to 1399. Then you have a period of about 30 years or so uh, where they consolidate their victories and Joshua dies about 1360 B.C. Then you have the period of the Judges, which is approximately 300 years and lasts down to the time when Saul becomes king in 1051. So that gives you a time flow. Okay, any questions on that? It's important to really understand this chronology so you can put, put events in their proper proper perspective in each of these eras you have spiritual trends that characterize the era and during the conquest generation the emphasis is on the great work of Yahweh uh, in Deuteronomy 4 32 to 30 and they served Yahweh uh, the elders after Joshua remember up until Joshua's death they served the Lord and all the days of the elders after him so they are operating on the memory of Yahweh's great work in the conquest, and they continue to serve Yahweh. But the, after the surviving witnesses, then they don't remember, they don't know the great works of Yahweh, and they no longer serve Him. And the nation begins to fall apart. Okay, let's look at the basic exposition of Judges. We'll just hit some of the high points. 
I've given you an outline. One of the things that I'm doing is there's so much to cover in some of these books, I can't cover everything. So I try to write out some of the material for you just so you can go back and read it and get some of that detail. In the first chapter, what you have is a summary of Israel's compromise, failure, and then defeat. And it's, it's a rehearsal of, the, of their success and failures. And it begins, uh, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked, Who shall go, be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So this takes place after the death of Joshua. And they say, now wait a minute. We just had a statement of Joshua's death in, in chapter 2, verse verse, um, verse 7. Yes, this that's a, chapter 2, 7 and the rest of chapter 2. It sort of goes back in time to the death of Joshua and summarizes what happened. Chapter 1 takes place after the death of Joshua. And it's going to give us this summary of their failure after Joshua's death. So remember you have sort of a, during the initial conquest, they took the major cities, the major strongholds. So now they're going to go in and it's a, a mopping up operation where they're going to go in and they're going to try to secure the areas that were not secured in the major, and uh, in the initial conquest. They took the major cities like Jericho and Ai and Gibeon. They defeated the major king, uh, the major alliances in the south and then in the north. But then it was time to consolidate their uh, their gains. And this is where we see successive failure. And the first example is Judah goes up and the Lord delivers the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they killed 10,000 men at Bezek which is a city in the uh, highlands of Judah down in the south. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek. Now, Adonai Bezek would be a title. Look on the map up on the overhead. See, here is this area down here in green is the territory of Judah. We aren't sure exactly where the town of Bezek was located, but it was somewhere down in this area. And Adonai Bezek is the is the the king or the ruler of that city or territory, and he's a man who's got a very violent and vicious past. And when they capture him, rather than killing him, remember that was what they were told to do. So you begin to see how. They're compromising with the command to annihilate. Instead of killing him, what do they do? They cut off his thumbs and his toes. Why do they do that? He can't walk. He can't hold a sword. He can't throw a spear. They basically uh, prevent him from being able to fight again. But what they're, what they're doing, see the Bible, the, the Mosaic Law never authorizes maiming anyone for uh, any kind of crime or punishment except for one particular instance in uh, Deuteronomy. So they're acting, they're not only compromising by not totally annihilating the, the king, by not killing the king, 
the way they punish him is a pagan punishment. So you begin to see how they're already compromising uh, the, the way they're doing things. They, they did it. They punished him the way this king had punished others. He said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table as I had done so, so God has repaid me. And then you go down and you learn about Caleb and Caleb attacks uh, Hebron, which uh, formerly had been known as Kiriath Arba, and takes that, and then he comes to Debir, and he gives a challenge. He said, whoever attacks Kiriath Safer, that's Debir, and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Oxa as wife. And so Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, so this is Caleb's nephew, took the challenge and conquered Debir, and Caleb gave him his daughter Oxa as his wife. Now, this gives us a character insight into Oxa and into Othniel. Othniel, we see, is a man of courage. He's trusting God. He is in that conquest generation, which is positive. He's one of the elders who witnessed the miracles of God, so he is a solid believer. He's presented that way. Uh, Oxa is also presented. Notice how she is described as, as a woman. Nothing negative is indicated about her. It says now it happened when she came to her father to to Ox to uh, excuse me to uh, Othniel. She urged him to ask her father for a field. Now this gives you insight into the role of a wife. She does, she's not dictating policy to him, but she's saying, look, this is a good idea. This is a great investment. We don't have a lot of wells in this around De Beer, so we need to have uh, we need to be able to water. <coughs> we need the fields. Uh, we need this addition. Let's ask Caleb for more land and land that has is well watered. So she shows wisdom in what she wants. And she shows deference to her husband's authority in the way she approaches him. Then he agrees, and so she goes to ask Daddy, Caleb. And she dismounts from her donkey. This is a sign of respect. A woman would never sit up on a horse or a donkey or a camel and talk to a man on the ground. So she shows that she understands protocol and good manners, and is polite and respectful uh, to her father. And so she dismounts from her donkey. Caleb says, what do you wish? And she requests of him in a very polite way, give me a blessing, since you've given me land in the south, the Negev, which is a very arid, deserty part of the country, uh, give me springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And so this is going to be a blessing for their descendants ongoing. So she's thinking in terms of the future. She's not just in th- terms of thinking in terms of herself. She's not just thinking in terms of the immediate need. She's thinking long term. It's a very positive picture of Aksa as a woman and as a wife and as a daughter. A very positive view of women. By the time we get to Samson, what are we going to see? Women are portrayed as sex objects. They're abused and they are manipulated by the men around them. What causes the shift? That's part of the argument of judges. It's what happens when they become to begin to act more and more like the, pag- like the pagans and more and more like the Canaanites. 
Then you can read through the rest of the chapter and you go from tribe to tribe to tribe as they take parts of the land and what happens is they fail because they, uh, they increasingly refuse to fulfill the, the command of holy war to destroy and annihilate every man, woman, and child. Okay, and that gives you the outline down to down through the end of the chapter. What we see in the conclusion under point number five, this is on the next page, is that uh, Joshua had broken the strength of the Canaanites. He broke their strength in the, in the initial in the initial conquest by taking out all the major strongholds. However, none of the tribes successfully drove out the Canaanites, all the Canaanites in their own territories. After the death of Joshua, they, the concept of holy war broke down and they refused to annihilate everyone in their territory until by the time you get down to uh, the end, you have the uh, various tribes such as... Uh, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Uh, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants in their area. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants in their area. Asher didn't drive out the uh, cohabit and Asherites cohabited with the Canaanites in their area, and all the way down uh, to the end. So God then, at the beginning of chapter two. The angel of the Lord comes to Bochim. Now, it's not named Bochim until after this because Bochim means the place of weeping. And there God tells him, look, because you completely failed, because you didn't obey my voice, because you didn't do what I said, I'm not going to permanently wipe them out. In fact, I'm going to leave them in your midst so they'll test you. And it will constantly be a, a, a point of testing for you to see if you are going to follow me or follow them. And so they called the name of the place Bochim, and the people, of course, have an emotional reaction to this. But it doesn't last. See, emotion doesn't last. Why is it that in so many churches they have this walking the aisle stuff, and they get people all emotional, and they go through this emotional remorse, but it doesn't last? Emotion never lasts. It's got to be a change of thinking, not a change of emotion. So then in chapter 2, as I pointed out, we have a God's interpretation of these failures. That they fail because of their rejection of God. That's the root cause for Israel's apostasy. And there's a, this cycle that they go through. The basic problem is that the Jews assimilated... The Jews assimilated with the inhabitants of the land and accepted their religious practices. This is down under, um, we're going to skip ahead, this is down into chapter 3. Chapter 3, God left the nations to test Israel's obedience. And we come down to 3, 1 through 6. We find this fact. And the bottom line comes in verse 6. They took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and they served their gods. That's the conclusion. Once they begin to assimilate and to intermarry with the Canaanites, 
Then what happens? You this is so important. Everyone in here is single. When you marry, you're going to marry into somebody's family. And you're going to be subject, whether you like it or not, or want to admit it or not now. Most of the time when you're in your 20s, you don't realize the influence. But the grandparents are going to influence your children. You're going to go places. And those those kids, you're going to leave your kids with the grandparents. And they're going to teach whatever they believe. I mean, you have to take a look at the family. Do you want to marry into that family? You want your children and your grandchildren be influenced by, you know, the pagans in your wife's family? These are things you have to pay attention to. And this is what caused the failure in Israel. Okay, this gives us, uh, to, takes us to the next section, which begins in 3 verse 7, which shows us the paganization of the leaders. Yeah, Chapter 2 verse 1. Says the angel of the Lord came up from Jehovah. Now that's still on the earth. Yes. So we still have angels walking around on the earth. The angel. Who's the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord is the commander of the army. This is where you what you missed in Joshua last week. The angel of the Lord is is giving. His marching orders to Joshua at Gilgal. Okay, the angel of the Lord is always the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. So to put this in Joshua, see this this is right in the framework of Joshua. The angel of the Lord is the commanders dictating to the army where they go and how they conquer. And so the angel of the Lord who has been appearing down at Gilgal where the Ark of the Covenant is, where they've, they've got the... Uh, tabernacle at that time now comes up to what? Well you have angels appear in the New Testament but only only in a few instances in the New Testament. It's very early in the life of the church. So you don't have and in actual in all actuality when angels do appear in the Bible they are on very rare occasions. And if you look at the Old Testament, whenever an angel appears to anybody in the Old Testament, it is always because there is a a significant event or shift within God's overall plan of what he's doing in history. He doesn't just appear to Joe Blow believer out in the fields unless he's getting ready to do something really significant through this everyday believer out in the field. And the same thing in 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 the New Testament. You don't have these kinds of miraculous things happen just randomly. They always operate within a made, within the structure of what God is doing in history as he's moving things along. That's why you have people today think, you know, talking about angels appearing, getting healing and all this. They don't understand anything about what the Bible teaches. This never, these things never were normative. You know what I mean by normative? A normally expected occurrence. They were never normative in the Old Testament. They weren't normative even in the early church. They were extremely rare. They did happen, but in the New Testament, angels and neither angels nor demons appear in the New Testament. Uh, and uh, if you want to learn more about that, you can read my book on spiritual warfare. Okay, let's move on. A lot to cover. 3-7. The argument in this section is that the nation progressively takes on the characteristics of the pagan nations around it. 
just as the people act like the pagans around them, the leaders begin to act increasingly like the Canaanites. Principle, no matter how strong the leader, they could not overcome the spiritual decline of the people. So even when you did have leaders who were solid, the people just never got their heart behind the Lord. They were not positive to, to Scripture. And as soon as the strong deliverer went off the scene, as soon as he died, the people just went right back into, into paganism. Peter uses a rather picturesque image to describe this in First Peter. Do any of you know what that is? A dog returning to its vomit. And that's how God pictures us, is that just as a dog throws up, you ever seen that? It's really gross. You know, a dog throws up and goes back and eats it. That's our tendency, is we're always going to go back to the vomit. We are Because of our sin nature, we're drawn that way. We, that's why there's such an emphasis in Scripture to focus on the Lord, otherwise our natural tendency is always to go back into the cesspool of uh, paganism. Othniel's the first deliverer. Othniel's the first deliverer. The evil that Israel does is defined in this context as idolatry. You know, don't, you always be careful to look at the context. How many of y'all are taking Bible study method right now? You took it before, okay. You look at context. One of the most important rules is context, context, context. And when you look at the scripture and it says that they, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, what's the next sentence? They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. What does it mean to do evil? Throughout the Old Testament, you will find that in 98% of the cases when evil is mentioned, it's in the context of idolatry. That is what evil is. It's worshiping another god, a false system of religion. So that the greatest evil in the world is not what most people think of in terms of awful sins. The worst evil in the world is some sort of moral religious system that isn't, isn't um, based on the Bible, that isn't biblical, isn't consistent with the Scripture. So you can have many wonderful, kind uh, generous, hard-working religious people, and in, the, in God's eyes, they're evil because their system of thought sends people to the lake of fire. And there's nothing worse than that, no matter how good and kind and wonderful they may be. All right, so the, we're told then, therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, this is the ruler between the, uh, the two rivers. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. And when they cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. Now, let's talk about the Spirit of the Lord in Judges. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was not given permanently. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is given Permanently. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was only given for specific tasks after a person was saved. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is given to every believer at the instant of salvation. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given for the purpose of 
giving a special ability to a leader of the nation in order to accomplish a task. Now that's very important. People do not understand this. They go back, they read the Old Testament, they think, well, the Holy Spirit came on them, he's filled with the Spirit like the New Testament. It's The language isn't the same. You have this terminology, came upon him, he came to him. He doesn't dwell within him, and he leaves. And as we'll see here, in many cases in Judges, you have the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and then he makes his vow to sacrifice his daughter, or Satan, to make this sacrifice to God that is totally, uh, totally wrong. It's a non-biblical uh, thing. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord came on Samson, but Samson's a spiritual loser. Never does anything right. So you see, the, the, you have to understand what this is talking about. The role of the Holy Spirit is to provide leadership skills and abilities for the administration or military success of the nation. You go back to Exodus. The Holy Spirit came on Bezalel and Aholiab, who were the craftsmen, who were uh, the goldsmiths and the carpenters, silversmiths who were making the furniture for the ark. It was to give them special skill in their work so that what they produced was what God wanted. It doesn't have anything to do with spiritual growth or spiritual maturity in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is related to the uh, positional sanctification of every believer so that you're set apart the instant of salvation. God makes your body a temple for the indwelling of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's ministry in the believer is to uh, sanctify you, to help you in your spiritual growth. You don't have anything like that in the Old Testament. They don't walk by the Spirit. They don't live by the Spirit. They're not indwelt by the Spirit. They're not filled with the Spirit. None of that happens in the Old Testament. It's only in the New Testament. Okay? Any questions? So... Th- Othniel delivers a nation, he rules for 40 years, and then he dies. And that's all that's said. Nothing negative, nothing bad. He's pictured as everywhere we read about Othniel, nothing but good things are said. Then we come to the second uh, second judge, who's Ehud. Ehud is a left-handed assassin. My, my title when I preached this was, When Lefty Killed Fatty in the Outhouse. Because that's what this is about. Lefty kills fatty in the outhouse. The enemy at this time, the children of Israel again do evil in the sight of the Lord. And so Eglon, the king of Moab, is uh, strengthened by God to come in and conquer Israel. Now, if we look at the map that I have here, here's Moab down here. So what happens is there's an assault that occurs. It comes in. Uh, Moab controls the territory of Reuben up here just to the north of Moab. He crosses the Jordan just above the Dead Sea, and he is taking a big control chunk out of the center of the country. He doesn't conquer the whole country, but he conquers the center part of the country and puts them under a tribute. And he's in alliance with the Ammonites. And remember, the kingdom of Ammon is up here to the uh, northeast of Moab, just to the west of the tra- uh, just to the east of the Transjordan, and Amalek. So there's a coalition of Ammonites, um, Amalekites, and Moabites. And he defeats Israel. He takes possession of the city of Palms, which is uh, down there near Jericho, and he. Uh, 
They serve Eglon for 18 years. Then they cry out to the Lord in verse 15, and the Lord sends Ehud to a left-handed man to come and deliver them. Now, this is what happens. A couple of points to, to, to indicate here. First of all, The name Eglon means round or rotund. Fatty. He's enormous. This guy is one corpulent king. And it's a play on words. And so the author of Scripture is pointing out that it's a lot of humor here. There's tremendous humor in the Hebrew. We miss it in translation. But this is written almost like a farce. It's a, it's, it's, it's a satire. And he, the writer uses a lot of irony and humor to illustrate the failures that are going on here. Tyranny. Where? The Holy Spirit came upon Othniel. Here? The Holy Spirit came upon Othniel to give him ability to deliver the nation. Okay, this episode with Ehud is written with like, like a satire. The Jews would read this and they would laugh. What's the matter? They would, they would laugh. These would have great humor. They'd tell this story around the fire. Remember? When old, old lefty kill fatty. And, 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 and that's what's going on here. And that's how it's written with that level of humor. And so the Israelites would cry out from despair, you know, as they are under oppression, but there's no real repentance mentioned here. There's no change. They're just crying out because they're under oppression. Oh God, finally, they turn to God to deliver them. Now Ehud uses deception to assassinate Eglon. It's a pagan methodology. He comes in and he disguises himself. He's he's very uh, uh, he's he's very uh, sophisticated in the way that he that he handles this. And he comes in and he uh, has a dagger in his left hand. Everybody's expecting a right-handed person, so that tells us that uh, left-handed people were extremely rare. And he hides this dagger and they they, they search him. And he's bringing the tribute money to Eglon. And when he presents the tribute, um, uh, he sent away the people that were with him who carried the... And he goes back, and um, uh, he goes back. He himself, verse 19, himself turned back from the stone images at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. So apparently the king, uh, Eglon, had set up some sort of uh, temporary residence near Gilgal, and he goes back to the king, and Ehud, after, uh, I mean, Eglon, after he had dismissed Ehud, goes up to the outhouse, which was typically up on the roof. And so he's up there going where the king goes alone. And while he's up there, Ehud comes up and goes in and kills him. And he uses his left hand. So as he's sort of reaching out, like to shake hands with him, 
He he has his dagger hidden, says, look, I've got a message for you. Come here, it's a secret. And he stabs him. And the scripture is very graphic. He drives the dagger into his belly, and the hilt goes in after the blade. These rolls of fat just come over the blade to the point that it pierces his intestines and the dirt comes out. The entrails come out. All this just starts pouring out. And it's very graphic. See, that, that ought to give you a different... This is the Holy Spirit's communicating this. So when we go, oh, that's horrible. You know, wait a minute. Who's writing this? God's writing this. He wants us to understand... Uh, the, the, I read through the Hebrew in Judges and in Samuel. The Holy Spirit is very graphic in His language. I mean, it's the kind of stuff that would make a lot of Christians just, oh, why? That's terrible. But, you know, we just don't let the... Scripture dictate our values on these things. So he assassinates uh, Eglon, his servants, and there's a humor, very humorous picture that the, the servants are afraid to go in. He's in the bathroom. Who's going to go bother him? We're not going to go bother him. They stand around, you know, put their hands in their pockets, and they just don't know what to do. And finally they go in and uh, work up the courage to go in. They discover that he's dead, and, of course, this allows Ehud to escape. And once he escapes, then he puts out a cry for the, uh, blows the trumpet, and the armies in Ephraim come out, and they go and they defeat the army of Moab because they lack leadership, and they deliver the nation. Okay, that's, that's Ehud. Then we come to the next guy. Now the next guy is Shamgar. After him was Shamgar the son of Anat, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. Now, does it say he was a judge? No, it doesn't. It doesn't say he was a judge. He's a deliverer. Now, what's interesting about Shamgar, and you have to do this every now and then in Scripture, you have to come, you come to things like this and you say, why is this here? Why does God the Holy Spirit want us to know about Shamgar? Well, you have to look at what's going on in the context. Now, a lot of this information that I've got, I've taken from a number of really good commentaries. Uh, One of the best commentaries written on uh, Judges is one that's in the New American Commentary series by Daniel I. Block, who teaches at uh, Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he does an excellent analysis uh, of a lot of technical stuff going on in the Hebrew in this this chapter, uh, in the whole book. And he, he does an analysis of Shamgar, which uh, I've been able to pretty much go back and check and validate. I think he's absolutely correct uh, from all the research that I've done in analyzing this. Shamgar is a name based on four letters. In the Hebrew, you have S, H, M, G, and R. Now, Hebrew words are these are four letters. Hebrew words are all based on three letters. So this is not a Hebrew name. This reflects a Hurrian type of name. Now the Hurrians were another people group that lived northeast of, of the land of Canaan. Now this is very important. You can't, I don't think you can understand the flow of what's going on here unless you understand why Shamgar is going on here. He's called the son of Anat. Now, who was Anat? Anat, and I pronounced 
pronounce that like it's a T instead of a TH because that's how the Hebrew works. She was the goddess of war. She's the goddess of fertility, the goddess of war. She's this bloodthirsty uh, pagan goddess in the um, Canaanite pantheon. And when you find the phrase son of something in the scripture, it's always identifying them with that. So if Jesus is God, he's called the son of God, meaning he's God. If somebody's a murderer, they're called the son of a murderer. If they're a fool, they're called the son of a fool. If they're a liar, they're called the son of a liar. So if Shamgar is called the son of a knot, it's identifying him with this pagan Canaanite goddess who's the consort of Baal and is the goddess of war. Now why is God using this guy who's so closely aligned with this pagan, vicious, violent, bloodthirsty goddess of war to deliver Israel? Well, it tells us one thing. Shamgar, remember, the Holy Spirit doesn't come on to say anything like that. Maybe he's not even a believer. Maybe he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. Maybe God's using a Gentile to deliver Israel in a military campaign because there's nobody in Israel who can do it. Because Israel's so pagan, there's no leader to come forward and stand in the gap. I think that's what's going on here. There's some other interesting stuff that happens here. The terms, at the same time in history, down in Egypt, the Pharaoh in Egypt has a um, uh, pretty, pretty strong, down in e- Egypt, he has a strong army. And he uses a lot of mercenaries. You know what a mercenary is? A mercenary is when you hire foreign nationals to come serve in your government, your, your army. Your soldiers aren't Egyptian soldiers. They're, they're going to come from other, other countries. Guess, in, in, in modern history, uh, not so much in the 20th century, but in the, like the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, which country in Europe provided the, uh, a great mercenary soldiers that fought in everybody's army? You know? The Swiss. The Swiss guards still guard the Pope. Okay? Because they had such a reputation. Guess who the country was that had the, had this reputation in the ancient world? The Hurrians. Okay, so we got this Hurrian who's going to deliver Israel. Now, there's another interesting piece of the puzzle. What we've discovered archaeologically and historically is that among the, in the Egyptian army there was the, there were these crack troops like we have uh, special forces ranger. They had this crack group of first-class soldiers that were the shock troops that they sent in, like the Marines, you know. And guess what they were? They were hurrying mercenaries. And just as we have it, like a screaming eagle represents the, uh, is it the, is it the 82nd or 101st Airport? I forget. But you have different mascots for different units. Guess what this hurrying mercenary unit was called? They were called the Sons of Anat. See how you have to know history to understand these things. If you're a Jew reading this, you'd know this. But see, we're so divorced from history, we don't understand all this. So Shamgar has a Hurrian name. He's called the son of Anat, which so happens to be the name of an Egyptian military unit of of mercenaries made up of Hurrian soldiers. And they operated on the border. They operated on that southwestern border with Egypt. See, if you look at the map, 
this area right here is the area of Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath. This area right here is the area of Philistia. This area just down to the lower left off the map, that's the border with Egypt. So the picture here is, is that there's no Jewish, there's no Jew who can do the deliverance because they're all caught up in paganism. You're already beginning to see the fact that when you get caught up in paganism, it affects leadership. God doesn't have any Jews to use to, to, uh, to take out the Philistine army right now to protect the uh, southeastern flank of Israel, so he uses an Egyptian soldier to do it, and he uses a rather primitive weapon, an ox goat, which is like a long staff uh, with a, uh, a hook on the end, and he uses that, and he kills these... Uh, uh, 600 Philistines. So, all that that verse is saying is that he took out 600 men which delivered Israel, protected them militarily on the flank. Now, that sets the stage for what happens with Deborah. Because Deborah's an anomaly. What's an anomaly? Something that's rare and unusual. What's rare and unusual about Deborah? Is God, God uses a woman to judge Israel. Why does he have to use a woman to judge Israel? Because in paganism, you get a role reversal, and the men won't be men, so the women stand in the gap. Now, we already had a picture of the fact that Shamgar, had, a non-Jew, had to stand in the gap as a deliverer. And it's a picture. And, and what we see with Deborah is that Deborah is going to deliver Israel. The Lord, uh, she is a prophetess. If you look at the, um, look at the notes, and I'm going to give you a break in just a minute. Kylan Delich. Y'all familiar with Kylan Delich? Ever heard of that? This is a very well-known uh, Old Testament commentary. Well-respected scholarly commentary. The, she has two gifts. Deborah is a prophetess, and she is a judicial arbiter. She operates like, a, like we would think of as a judge or a magistrate. This gift, according to Kylan Delich, this gift qualified her to judge the nation. The participle expresses the permanence of the act of judging, i.e., first of all, to settle such disputes among the people themselves as the lower courts were unable to decide, and which ought therefore, according to Deuteronomy 17.8, to be referred to the supreme judge of the whole nation. The palm where she sat in judgment was called after her the Deborah palm. The Israelites went up to her there to obtain justice. The expression came up as applied here as in Deuteronomy 17.8, to the place of justice as a spiritual height, independently of the fact that the place referred to here really stood upon an eminence. That's up on a hill. Now Deuteronomy 17.8 says, If any case is too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, between one kind of lawsuit or another, and between one kind of assault or another, being cases of dispute in your courts, then you shall arise and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. In other words, Deborah's function as a judge is more magisterial and, and in terms of judicial than it is in terms of a, of a military authority. But when there is an oppression by, by uh, uh, Jabin, who is up here in the north, let's look at the map. Up here in the north, this is where Hotsor is located. This is the Sea of Canareth, as it was known in the Old Testament, or the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Hotsor is up here in the north, and he's oppressing the Jews in Naphtali, Asher, Zebulun. Remember, these were the tribes that couldn't defeat the Canaanites. So 
military strength is restored to Hatzor, and now it's up to Deborah to deliver them. So she calls for uh, Barak. And Barak has, a, has a, um, uh, a reputation of being a great soldier, but he waffles. He waffles. She sends for him. She says, God's going to deliver us. He's commanded it. And Barak says, well, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. He's timid. Now, how can I say he's timid? Well, maybe he just wants her to go because she's, she's a prophetess. And she, he wants her close by because this is the word of, the, word of God. Be, but the response from God is that, that God says, because of, basically in the next verse she, she says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. See, he is being he's, he had the opportunity to trust God and to lead the nation in victory at that moment, but because he says, Now I'm not going to go unless you go with me, God punishes his timidity and says, Okay, because you were timid and you didn't trust me initially, I'm going to take the, glo- the glory away from you and it's going to go to a woman. So you see, we start with Oxa and a high view of women. And then here women have to stand in the gap because men aren't being men. They're not taking the leadership role. They're being timid. And so Deborah is, called, is a prophet. And there's only uh, three or four examples in all of Scripture as women functioning as prophecies. Miriam is one in Exodus 15.20. Deborah is a second. Huldah in 2 Kings 22.14. And then Anna in the New Testament and the daughter's of Philip. Now, what does a prophetess do? Same thing a prophet does. It's a voice for God, a mouthpiece for God. It doesn't. A prophet doesn't interpret the word of God. It's a prophet simply says what God told the prophet to say, without interpreting it. See, a teacher in the New Testament, a pastor in the New Testament, and there's no prophets anymore. A pastor or teacher interprets the Word of God. That's why women are, are prohibited from being pastors and teaching the Word by Paul is because it's a different function than what you have as a prophet in the Old Testament. So she leads, uh, she goes with him. Uh, Barak finally gets his act together. He responds to the, to the uh, rebuke and he trusts God and they uh, marshal the troops from Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. They get about 10,000, and they defeat the enemy. Now, the enemy, under the uh, leadership of Sisera, Sisera is uh, the general, and they go, they retreat, and they, they flee. And he flees, and he as he's running away, and Barak's army chases him, he goes to finds the tent of Jael, who is the wife of Heber the Kenites. Now, remember, the Kenites were descendants of Moses' in-laws. Uh, they were mentioned earlier. And so he goes into Jael. She knows who he is. And he says, oh, she says, oh, come on, come into the house, take a nap, I'll prepare food for you. And he's exhausted and lies down and goes to sleep. And she grabs a tent peg and comes up. And just just nails it right through the temple, and just uh, just skewers him with the tent peg, and drives it right through the side of his head, and kills him. And so she is the one who is honored and glorified for for defeating Sisera, rather than 
uh, Barak. Okay, that takes us to chapter 5, which is a psalm of praise written by Deborah. Now, one of the interesting things that, that um, oh, that we'll point out here is, uh, let's just go back to our, make sure you have the fill in the blanks here. Deborah fulfills two roles. She's the prophetess and she's the judicial arbiter. She's a prophetess and she's a judicial arbiter. Hmm? No, we didn't skip any. Let's pay attention. Hmm? She fulfills two roles. She's a prophetess and a judicial arbiter. The oppressor here is Jabin, the king of Hatsor. Jabin, the king of Hatsor. Now, Jabin is not his proper name like Bill or Sam or Fred. It is a title or a dynastic name. Because in Joshua 11.1, Joshua had also defeated a Jabin who was the king of Hatsor. So Jabin is the king of Hatsor, and his general is Sisera. It says that Sisera lived in Harasheth Hagoyim, which is literally the woodlands of the nations, uh, which is located southwest of Hatsor, and probably in the Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley is the same basic area where the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place. And then under 8C... The fill in the blank there is Yahweh is the deliverer. In Judges 4.14, which is the center of that chapter, we're told, Deborah said to Barak, Up, for, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men uh, following him. And in verse 15 we read, And the Lord routed Sisera. And that word for rout means to send complete confusion and destruction upon an army. It's used numerous times in the scripture with God as the subject. Okay, that takes us through Deborah and Barak. One interesting note, one interesting note. Let me see if I've got a verse here for this. Second Chronicles 25.3. 2 Chronicles 25.3 describes a man named Jeduthun who prophesied to the Lord by singing praises and thanksgiving to God on his harp. Now listen to me. You guys who are in, word, in, uh, in Bible study methods, you have to pay attention to word usage to understand what it means. What does prophecy mean? See, we always I keep repeating this because I'm trying to knock a lot of misinformation out of your head. We all often think of prophecy as telling the future. 
But here you have a passage in Second Chronicles 25.3 that says prophesying was done by a musical instrument and singing praises and giving thanks to God. Yes, Second Chronicles 25.3. Did I write that down wrong? I did. Maybe it's First Chronicles. First Chronicles twenty-five three. Okay. Of Jedithan, and so the point is that we think of prophecy as foretelling something. You have several places where Saul is numbered among the prophets, and he prophesies all day long. Well, what does that mean? To me, the only thing that can make sense is that we have to have a sense of prophecy that includes singing praise to God as a form of prophecy. It's not foretelling. It's not giving the word of God. It is. Uh, it has to do with with constructing songs of praise to God or writing songs of praise to God. And the interesting thing is, both Miriam, remember the song of victory that Miriam writes back in Exodus. Both Miriam and Deborah then write a psalm of praise, Judges five and back in Exodus. And they're prophetesses, so maybe their, their role as a prophetess has more of this connotation of singing praise to God and writing hymns than it does the idea of, of being a mouthpiece for God. I mean, just a thought. But we ha- There's a lot of things that are said in the Old Testament about use, the usage of the word prophecy that, unfortunately, because of the influence of, of the charismatic theology today, a lot of people think it means what things it doesn't mean. We read this distortion of the charismatic movement back into the Old Testament rather than letting the Old Testament uh, and the Bible speak for itself in terms of defining these particular these particular operations. Okay, let's take a break. We got, as I said, we've got a lot to cover. And I've really gone a lot longer than no, I normally do before I give you a break. It's 11.20. Let's just take a quick break to about uh, uh, 11.35. I'll start back at 11.35, and then we'll cover uh, the rest of the book in a short amount of time.